Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, June the 8th, 2023. Uh, a couple of years ago, we did a great show with a writer, Ben Wilson, on the invention of the city. Um, his book, Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention, has done very well. And what I love about Wilson's book and his take is this idea of humankind's greatest invention being the city. It seems to encapsulate or epitomize or capture what it is to be a human being. Of course, nobody wrote a better book about cities than uh, Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities, which is a book about the same city seen from many different angles. And there, of course, are many ways for writers to think about a city. Take New York, for example, earlier this week. I did a show with the New York-based writer John Michaud, um, who captured New York through a bar. He has a new book out, Last Call at Coogan's, The Life and Death of a Neighborhood Bar. Uh, he sees New York in this bar, a place of tolerance and openness and diversity. It was a great conversation, and it's a wonderful book. Of course, there are lots of other ways of thinking about great cities like New York. Uh, we had Michael Kimmelman, the New York Times architecture critic on the book, suggesting that New York should be sabred on foot rather than from a car. In other words, it needs to be seen uh, knee-high, if you like. Uh, we need to look a city straight in the face. Uh, we had uh, the great flaneur Dwyer Murphy on the show, also talking about New York and suggesting that the only way to write about a city is to go out with out an iPhone uh, and like Kimmelman to walk around uh, and look a place straight in the face. Uh, he has a new book out, An Honest Living, which is a fictional recreation of this. My guest today, though, sees things, I think, rather differently. Rather than looking at a city in the face, he looks down on it. And he looks down on it because he's an airline pilot. Uh, Mark uh, uh, Van uh, Van Hoenecker is a very distinguished writer. He's written three books, and his latest book, Imagine a City, a pilot's love letter to the world's greatest cities, is just out in paperback in the UK. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us uh, from near his birthplace in Western Massachusetts. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. So, Mark, uh, have I got it right? Are you a man a writer, a thinker, uh, a human being who spends his life looking down on cities? I mean, I guess you don't have any choice because you're a pilot. Well, yeah, as, as pilots, obviously, we have um, an incredible experience of cities. And, you know, we, we live in this age of urbanization. I think more than half of us already live in, in, in cities, and by 2050, maybe two-thirds of us will. Um, and long-haul pilots today are, are therefore having an experience of cities, which is unlike anyone in history has ever had before. You know, we fly over them, obviously, um, to start with. We, uh, I just did a flight from, uh, from London to Tokyo, Haneda. And, I mean, I can't even, I couldn't even begin to list the cities um, um, that, that we passed uh, on the way. But, you know, I could try. We, we, after takeoff from London, we, we, we were flying east. We could see, see all, all of London off to the north. Um, and then Brussels and Frankfurt and 
uh, Vienna and Bratislava and Prague and uh, and Varna and Trabzon and Baku and, uh, and we flew just to the north of Dushanbe and then Urumqi in, in western China and, and then right over Beijing and Seoul and then Kyoto and then and then finally made our descent into Tokyo. So you know even account not accounting for what we do after we land, uh, our experience of cities from above uh, uh, is beautiful and, and mystifying and, um, and and utterly mesmerizing. It's one it's one of the greatest joys of my job, especially at night when we see them. Uh, and then, of course, when we when we, after we land, we explore cities and we see them in a way that, you know, is really unique. I used to be a business traveler um, and I know what it's like to land in a city and go straight to meetings and then and then have to go out with clients um, or customers in the evening um, and to, to kind of forget where you are almost. And, and also as a regular traveler uh, to have a list, a bucket list of things you want to do because you, you think you may never go there to that city again. Mm. Uh, whereas we go again and again and again um, so often that I. I couldn't. I can't even count how many times I've been to, to some of the largest cities on Earth. So, imagine a city is about that experience of cities uh, from above, mostly what it's like to come to know so many cities as a pilot. Yeah, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating book. You have a fascinating life. I half expected you to show up in a cockpit. What What is a cockpit like, Mark? You, in in some ways, live in a po- cockpit. You fly around the world. Uh, you describe this journey, a Marco Polo-style journey, but in contrast with Marco Polo, you did that uh, Eastern journey uh, in, in, in 12 or 14 hours. What, what is a cockpit like to sit in? Is it uncomfortable? Do you have fun in it? Well, I, you know, I am one of the few people I know among, among my friends who, who say they would not um, quit their job if they won the lottery. Um, I, I, I love flying and... And I love I love being in the cockpit. Um, so to describe a seven eight seven cockpit, um, in contrast to the planes I've flown before, for example, the seven forty seven, um, it uh, it's very comfortable. The seats are um, you can adjust them to you know they're electrically adjusted, so you can like a car, like a newer car, anyways. You can um, you can adjust them in any number of ways. Um, the, you have amazing views. We have four gigantic windows, um, two forward ones and two side ones. Um, we have uh, a head-up display, so uh, our vital flight data is projected onto a screen, which which comes down between us and, and the and the windscreen. Um, one of the small uh, comforts uh, is uh, uh, the the floors of flight deck tend to get very cold uh, because you know it's like minus sixty outside uh, when we're flying in the cruise, and so we have foot heaters, which are uh, an essential part of a of a comfortable twelve-hour uh, journey to the far side of the world. Um, and you know, I think. I think a flight deck looks very complex when you when you look at it, uh, you know, as I did when I, when I was a kid. Um, but once you know, uh, you know, once you know a little bit about or a lot about about how they're set up, you realize that the the panels are arranged uh, around the various systems of the aircraft. Uh, many buttons are, are you know are very rarely used except to select them to their standard uh, their, their their normal position, um, and. And then, of course, on a plane like the 787, a lot of the, the checklists, which are so important to, to day-to-day operations. Yeah, Mark, um, you, you mentioned uh, when you were training as a young man, for people watching here, we have an image of you in 1994 with your flight instructor in New Hampshire, and then on your first flight, um, controls of an Airbus 3, an A320 in 2003. You came from a small Massachusetts town called Pittsfield, uh, the kind of place where there's a tiny little airport in Western Massachusetts, not 
not Tokyo, not New York, not London, not Delhi. Is or has flying for you been a, a, a kind of liberation, a way of escaping the small town of Pittsburgh? I know you come back there and you still have a degree of affection for it. But for you, is, 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 have you quite literally and, and metaphorically taken flight from Pittsburgh through your career as an airline pilot? So that, that's a great question. And in some ways, that's that's the central question in the book, really, is what does home mean to you when you when you leave it uh, in as dramatic a fashion as an airline pilot does? Uh, you know, growing up in Pittsfield, I uh, I had two great loves. I, I had uh, one of those illuminated globes, uh, which uh, was an endless source of fascination for me and, and comfort as well. I used to love to to look at it and to read those those far off cities on it, which were you know really only names to me. Um, Nothing more than names, uh, sometimes quite evocative ones like, like Cape Town or, or Riyadh or Tokyo. Or, um, and, um, of course, I was in love with flying and I really wanted to be a pilot. Uh, and those kind of came together. And, of course, uh, you know, Pittsfield is, um, you know, is a small town. And that was that was a long time ago. And uh, it wasn't uh, I was growing up as a, you know, as a gay kid. It wasn't necessarily the easiest place or, or time. Uh, it was obviously easier than many other places in time. Well, happy Pride Month, Mark. We've done a, a lot of shows on that. You, you sort of slipped that one in growing up as a gay kid. Was that a trauma? Was that sort of central in your narrative and in terms of your 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 appetite to leave the place? Or, 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 or did you have a less traumatic experience growing up as a gay kid than, than many other gay children? So I understand now that it was a much less traumatic um, upbringing. Um, in fact, it was in a very loving environment uh, in my family and and uh, in the larger community. Maybe not so much in school. Um, and you know, I think I think that you know, so many people, you know, that story of of wanting to leave home and find your way in the world, um, and perhaps to do that in a city. Um, it, that's not a new story. It's a very old story. It's one of the oldest stories. So my version of it is. Uh, you know, has that, those aspects. I mean, and it had other elements too, which, which sound, um, uh, you know, so small in retrospect, but weren't small at all. When I, when I was growing up, I had a, a speech impediment, uh, which made it really hard for me to say that hard American R. Um, so people um, often couldn't understand what I was saying. And, and even my first name, uh, people wouldn't understand it when I said it. And that's a, you know, that's a really big deal when you're a kid. Um, and my father, uh, who was in Belgium, uh, you know, he um, he pointed out that, you know, different languages have different R's and, you know, a Spanish R and a French R and even a Japanese R are very different. Um, so as a kid, I was like, oh, well, I'll just move to one of those places when I grow up and, and then everything will be mm. fine. <laughs> um, I, I moved to England in the end, which has its own issues with R's <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, you know, the a unique R. You're, you're dodging, though, Mark, the uh, the issue of your and, and, and maybe you're choosing to dodge it, the issue of your sexual identity you, and, and, and I don't mean to keep on bringing it up, but you do include it. It's reasonably central in, in the narrative in your book. D does that play out a lot in in flying culture? You know, I fly a lot, and it seems to me in, in some ways um, airlines like hotels are refuges from the normal, the, the cultural norms and conventions of the world. Is it, it doesn't mean they are anarchic places they have their own rules but they're places where the traditional rules of of the world itself don't always apply is there some truth to that i don't know you know i don't think i was aware of that when i was growing up i think that 
my love of flying was, was so fundamental. It's the first thing I can remember uh, being interested in. And it's something that I, I shared with my father as well, uh, who was much more interested in military planes. I was always drawn to civilian ones. So I don't think, I don't think that was something that was a part of my love of flying, if you see what I mean. But certainly I was aware that, that, um, that cities were different kinds of places or bigger cities, Pittsfield is a city, um, that bigger cities were, were different. Um, and in that sense, um, the, you know, the idea that you'll, that you'll, uh, you know, move to a different place and become yourself or find yourself again, there, you know, there are many versions of that. And, and my version of coming out was, is, is, as you say, central to the book. And uh, cities, of course, in a, in a modernist sense, are defined by their, by their freedom, our ability to lose oneself. You know, when you see a city from above, like these images of Cairo from a piece you wrote, a uh, very romantic vision of Cairo from above, it, it seems to capture the freedom of the modern city. Is there some truth to that, Mark? When you're looking down at a city, you see all its potential, all the freedom, all our, all, all our, our ability to shape ourselves and be shaped by these incredible places that we've created. You know, it's interesting. It's I think the view of cities from above, especially at night, like like in that photo, is itself is is kind of wondrous, and you know, it's also deceptive in some ways. I mean, we think of cities as um, as cacophonous places, um, as noisy places, but from from the flight tech, they look completely silent. They look as they might from a spaceship almost. Um, mm. and, and yet, of course, light is such a good metaphor for. Um, uh, for life, really, you know, we we fly over so many parts of the world uh, where uh, where there's no light at all, either because it's a desert or it's an ocean or uh, it's the tundra or you know the, those kind of things. And then um, to see um, a city, and not only to see a city, but to see how a city builds up um, over over time as we fly or over land as, as we move over the land, um, to see the you know the first outer settlements and then roads that get wider and wider, and then eventually the roads themselves are lit or floodlit. And then you have, uh, and then you have this core of light, and and um, you know in that Cairo picture you can actually see some of the lights are of a different, or of a different type, and those are newer neighborhoods that have been built. You can see they're they're quite well planned, um, whereas off to the left of that screen you can see there are, uh, you know there are older parts of the city which are uh, which have grown more organically. Yeah, uh, and so that view of. Um, you know that each time you uh, you someone moves to a city, they bring their metaphorical and even their literal light with them um, until they gather enough to to be visible from above. Um, it is a notion of cities that I think uh, encapsulates um, what they mean to us. Uh, you know, even the word. You know, I I, I often think when, when when flying over cities that they they kind of look like like they look like civilization itself, and then you of course unpack the word civilization and you realize. That it you know it comes from city from townsperson, um, and and so they're very in that way the idea of them is very ancient and yet when we look down on them especially from above at night um, uh, they look incredibly futuristic as well. Um, yeah, they're they, universal. I, I, I'm sure, of course, you're familiar with Calvino's book Invisible Cities, a way of rethinking um, Marco Polo. Do you think Marco Polo would have been surprised? With the view of Cairo, for example, from from the cockpit of a seven eighty seven or a seven forty seven, I mean, would in an odd way he be comfortable with it, just as you might be comfortable traveling with Marco Polo eastward on a camel? 
and seeing a city on the outskirts for the first time? Well, of course, you know, so many cities, um, so many of the world's old, oldest and largest cities are in are in Asia, are in Eurasia. And of course, many of those names uh, would have been familiar to him. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's something, I mean, you know, jumping back to Calvino for a second, I mean, I, that is really one of the touchstones of of my of my literary um, of my literary interests, and there's even uh, you know imagine a city has I, I I wrote it in terms of characteristics or qualities of cities. So you know I'm talking about um, a city of blue, uh, a city of snow, um, and I, I got that in part from my dad because he he had lived sort of all over the world, and uh, when he wrote his his biography, which he wrote for his family, not not for publication, um, he uh, he wrote uh, he titled each of his chapters on a city in that format. But of course, it's also it's also uh, reminiscent of how um, invisible cities are structured uh, around city cities and signs uh, that that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea that cities have many things in common, and in fact, that you could that we experience. Uh, each of us experience, even when we're all in, in London, let's say, or San Francisco, we're all experiencing our own version of it. And that those versions of it sum to, um, not just to the truth of the city, but to the city itself, um, I think is at the core of invisible cities. And it, it's a very attractive notion, especially to someone who sees so many cities that, um, you know, sometimes I can't even remember if I've been to a city, like, you know, some friends will be going somewhere on holiday or something, and they'll be planning a trip and they'll say, oh, Mark, have you been to, um, um, to Dhaka or Jakarta or something. And then I have to think, have I? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Um, and that's, I mean, what, a, I mean, that might've amazed Marco Polo or maybe not. Um, the idea that we, that, uh, that we uh, could have been to so many places that they would all um, kind of merge together despite their uniqueness. Um, I'm wondering about your father. Uh, you've mentioned him a couple of times. He's very well-traveled. Um, I think he was an engineer. How did he end up in Pittsfield? Was he happy there? Uh, I think so. Yeah, actually, he was. Um, uh, he was a Catholic priest, uh, bizarrely enough. Um, given oh, I don't know why he was. Uh, I don't know why yeah, I thought he was a scientist. Given my um, given my presence, my existence, um, he um, he uh, was born in Belgium um, and then uh, lived in in Africa uh, in several cities in Africa and then in a number of cities in Brazil. Um, which is where he spent kind of the most formative period of his life, maybe about 10 or 12 years in Brazil. Um, and then it was on his way back to Belgium um, to, to, to leave the, his, uh, the priesthood and, and, and go to grad school um, that he stopped in Boston um, and uh, decided that would be a good place to live. Um, and then eventually the, uh, he met my mother and they moved to Vermont and then eventually to Pittsfield. And I think, um, you know, he knew, uh, well, our family knew, Several other families who came to the to the Berkshires to Pittsfield from from very far away, uh, from Germany, from uh, from East Asia, from Belgium, in my dad's case. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, it's, I I imagine they all at some point uh, uh, wondered how they how they ended up in a place uh, so the, a place they would have never heard of as children, to put it that way. But Pittsfield's a, a really amazing place. It has a lot of great history. Uh, Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick here, which is another book I, I love and, and reference. Uh, in my writing uh, as much as I can. Uh, in fact, I have an event in uh, in July uh, at his at the museum in his former house, um, which which will be um, you know a great honor uh, for for any son of Pittsfield to uh, to return to Melville's house and, and give a talk. So, Mark, um, you mentioned colors and cities. You have a particular interest in the color blue. What is it about 
the color blue that's so important um, for cities and in your writing, and particularly in Imagine a City? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I think blue is uh, you know it comes with a love of flying. I've never um, met any pilot who uh, whose favorite color isn't blue, or at least admits to to liking another color more. Um, and of course, uh, it's such a you know it's the color of our world. You know, and and I don't not just the sky, but uh, of course most of our flying is over the ocean or includes large portions of the ocean. And sometimes um, uh, you know you have this effect where the the, the blue from the, the sky and the blue from the sea nearly merge, um, which uh, is something a lot of writers have commented on. I mean, it's in um, it's into the lighthouse, I think, and, and Karen Blixen, who are out of Africa, talks about it as well, and I think Melville as well. I mean, it's a um, and 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 to to have that experience from above to to be in in a, in a world that is blue most of the time um, is 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 really. Uh, one of the other great joys of my job. And, you know, generally I prefer flying at night. Um, uh, I like the stars and I like the cities below, but uh, one of the great consolations of, of flying during the day is all that blue. Uh, and then uh, in Imagine a City, the the city of blue that I talk about most is Cape Town, uh, which uh, anyone who's been there will will remark on the uh, on the skies there and the water and, and even the, the color of the distant hills. Uh, Rather like San Francisco in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're very similar cities, um, and I think, you know, I, I don't know what your favorite city cities are, Andrew, but my one one of the things I've realized as a pilot is that the most beloved cities, um, from a sort of visual or, or topographic perspective, they all involve uh, mountains and water. So, you know, you think Cape Town, uh, Santiago. We did a, a chili show yesterday, and it reminded me I've spent some very nice time in Santiago. The the mountains uh, behind Santiago are as stunning as anything I can. I think. Yeah, they're unbelievable. Uh, Vancouver, Rio. Um, so that's um, yeah. And Pittsfield, Pittsfield doesn't have the sea, but it has some beautiful lakes and. Uh, and uh, yeah, my uh, my uh, love of cities, I'm afraid, is not very original. I, I, I'm not sure I can ever escape Venice. Do you? I mean, Venice is not a pilot city. Yeah, it has an airport, but not a major one. Do you write much about? Venice. I mean, obviously, Venice was central to Calvino's Invisible Cities. It was, it was, and you know, there's that great question in the book about, um, which I think is, you know, not entirely answered clearly. I mean, you know, there's that, there's the idea that all the cities that just that are described are Venice, or they're different cities. And I don't, I don't, I think, I think it's possible to interpret the book both ways because uh, there is that line in it where he says they're all Venice, but um, I don't know. Uh, anyways, Venice. I have flown over it a bunch of times. Um, usually, when I when I'm flying off to India or, or Egypt or other places, we fly over Venice. I, I've never flown to it as a pilot. When I was flying um, the short haul routes from Heathrow, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't a city that we flew. Yeah, it's not much of a it's not much of an airport. I mean, the the thing about flying into Venice is then you get the boat from Venice into the city. We did actually a show earlier this week on Venetian history and on the invention of the. I think it's a 16th century map of the world. Uh, how uh, you're obviously a romantic in in lots of ways, Mark. How romantic are you about maps? Has the digitalization of things, uh, from a pilot's point of view, has that done away with the the romantic quality of of maps and of navigation, or is there still a romantic quality even in in your high tech cockpit? Well, oh, that's 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 a great question. I mean, I love I love maps. When I was a kid, I, I mean, I had my globe, but I also had an atlas, um, and you know, and it was one of those. I think it was actually the Times, uh, the UK one, uh, 
where, you know, in the front of the book, it had the sort of world maps. And then at the back, it had 20 or 30 pages of city maps, um, which was a nice way to pair um, the layout of a city with its uh, location on, on the on the world. Um, you know, on in terms of the maps we use for work, uh, most of them have now moved to an iPad. In fact, all of them have moved to an iPad that we carry. Uh, and yet, um, even in that digital um, realm, there's... You know, they're, they're very, very interesting maps. I mean, they have, um, you know, it would be a great article at some point, which I should make a note to write about how different they are from what we think of as an ordinary map. I mean, what's there's some famous phrase about um, how they, um, you know, when you, the map maker makes the world, or, or I can't remember the exact phrasing, but, you know, the map maker is is making the, you know, the choices that a map maker makes um, shape how, how the world itself is perceived. And that's very true for aviation maps. I mean, they don't, they don't have cities on, no cities are marked on them, only airports. Um, the, you know, mountains are of course marked on them, but they're not named for the most part. It's just a spot on the map that you know is this height. Um, the, uh, there's lots of navigation beacons on them. Um, countries are barely marked on them, um, but airspaces, uh, which are uh, in my first book, Skyfaring, I, I kind of riffed a lot on that, on these kind of, kind of countries of the sky, which are um, these blocks of, of airspace uh, that sit above the world and somewhat, but not entirely align with the um, uh, the lines that on the map. Yeah, and of course, your other book is How to Land a Plane. Quite a quite a corpus you're building up, Mark. I wonder <laughs> you um you you mentioned that you you work off an iPad. Apple, of course, this week came out with their new uh, Vision Pro. This remarkable looking uh, virtual reality uh, device. Could you imagine in the future pilots? Wearing these Vision Pro style devices to fly a plane, would it change the experience? Would it undermine the experience? So when I when I saw when I saw the announcement about those headsets and some of the things people were using them for, the, the, actually the first thing I thought of was um, was flight simulation. Um, so right. we, we um, you know, one of the the rigorous aspects of my job is that every six months we go to a flight simulator for um, for two days of, of training where, um, and exams where, you know, things happen that essentially never happen on the aircraft, but uh, that we're being trained to, to deal with. Um, and those simulators cost, um, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars. I think some of them cost nearly as much as the aircraft they're simulating. Um, and, you know, they're so expensive that they're, they're used all, you know, night and day. Um, uh, you know, they're incredibly intricate and, and our time in them is carefully allocated. So a lot of time in the classroom um, while the other, while the previous crew is being examined and then we'll swap. So there's no lag time. And, you know, some of that, obviously those simulators have full motion capabilities. So they're moving, um, in, you know, the, the device, which is the size of a large car is on hydraulic jacks and it's, it's moving around. It's quite a thing to see. We should go on a ride in one sometime. Um, and they, uh, you know, so you couldn't simulate all of that motion with those headsets. But I was thinking about the, um, you know, when, when you switch to a new uh, aircraft type, which I did a few years ago from 747 to 787, it's common for pilots to get um, a, what's called a cardboard cockpit, which is a, you know, a set of panels um, that you can have in your home or in an office. And they simulate, they just show you where everything is so that um, when you're doing like your pre-flight checklist, for example, you can, you can sh learn where all the switches are um, while you're not on a simulator or an actual aircraft. Um, and I was thinking, well, of I, that would be an amazing thing that, uh, to do with a VR headset because A, you could do it everywhere and, and anywhere you wanted and, and B, 
um, it would just be much more realistic because it, it would be three-dimensional. I mean, it's this search for realism. It's like with the map, before the map of the world, we, we saw things differently. Mark, you just had an interesting piece in the, uh, the New York Times, a journey across London on the Elizabeth Line, the new uh, underground line. When I was growing up as a traveler, and this is probably a rather youthful folly. I always used to think, well, it's either trains or planes. You can't have both. And I was always a train person. And my favorite book was the Thomas Cook Guide. Now, for better or worse, I spend a lot more time on, tra- on planes than trains. How do you think of this, um, this alternative? Should we be thinking trains versus planes, especially in given global warming, more and more people are suggesting that we should travel on trains rather than planes. Do they go together? Are they opposites? Are they binary? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think my Twitter bio is uh, I love everything with windows and seats. Um, and uh, there's there's definitely something. And you got Snoopy on top. Yeah. Snoopy. As, well. as long as as long as you got a, a device to write and 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 a window and seats, Mark, you're happy, right? Well, of course, Snoopy had his own aviation ambitions, didn't he? He was uh, emulating. Uh, emulating. By the way, I hope you're not writing while you're flying planes. No, no, I'm not. I'm I'm writing usually on the on in a cafe after I land. Um, as, as far as trains go, I um, you know I do have I do have some more general transport geekery, um, and the Elizabeth Line is wonderful. Um, it's abs- it's absolutely transformative, and of course, it takes you to the plane. It takes you to Heathrow. Um, and, you know, Tokyo, for example, is a city that has a really central role in my life. Um, I, I went to Japan when I was in high school and had an amazing time there, a very formative time there. And then I went back when I was a consultant and, and now I go back often as a pilot. Um, and if you are interested in, in transport or in um, if you come from, uh, you know, a country where transport isn't invested in in the way you think it might be or should like, be. Like the United States. And, you know, Tokyo is just, I mean, it's like going to it's like going to an alternate universe um, in terms of that. And, you know, I, I will often, um, you know, if I, if I'm starting a day, you know, I might get a coffee around Tokyo station or something and I'll, you know, then I'll start to walk. And, um, and then you like look up and you just see these, um, you know, the Shinkansen just pulling in, you know, every 45 seconds, these, these, uh, these bullet trains pulling in and it does, you know, it does quicken the, quicken my, uh, quick in my heart. Um, and in fact, the Yamanote line, which is the, the circle line that goes around Tokyo, um, center of Tokyo. And I, I think this is right. I may, I may have this wrong, but I, I think more people ride that line every day than ride the entire London underground system. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, Asian cities being sort of quintessential. Uh, Pico Ayo, uh, Aya, who's been on my show, wrote a lovely blurb about your book. I mean, he, of course, is a great writer on Asian cities. I wonder whether the reason Asian cities mark are so important is because they still juxtapose tradition and modernity. You write uh, in the book and in the FT about Delhi and this photo in your piece in the FT juxtaposes the Delhi Metro as modern as anything in uh, Tokyo or anywhere else in the world with an auto rickshaw. Is that why Asian cities and particularly outside Japan uh, are so rich because they're able to juxtapose tradition and modernity. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. You know, I I did a um, uh, a, compar- a, a list at the start of Imagine a City where I just looked up the li- the um, the 550 or so largest cities to count how many I'd been to. 
Um, and I think I'd been to about 130, which was actually fewer than I thought. Um, but the other thing that really stands out uh, to someone who grew up in, in Pittsfield is, is how many of them are in Asia. I mean, most of them are in Asia. And uh, most of them, half the ones in China, we haven't even heard of. Yeah, I mean, there are the, I think 100 of them are in China. Uh, and so uh, clearly, um, you know, cities have a much longer history there than they do certainly in, um, you know, in the, the area that's now the United States. Um, and Tokyo is obviously a, the crowning example of that in the sense that it's um, the largest city that's ever existed. But, you know, Delhi is a great, I, I, you know, I love Delhi. It's the city um, I, I, I go to most in India. And um, one of the things that's been really interesting, which, which goes to your question a bit, is that when I first went there, the metro there had, had only just started up. Um, and, and, and now it's, you know, it's much more comprehensive. Um, and they're adding new lines. Basically, every time I go there, there's some new stations have opened. And and I have found my experience there as a foreigner um, just completely transformed by that because, you know, there's such a there's such a virtual quality to getting on a metro. You know, the the iconic London map, of course, being the best example. That you know, mm -hmm. you can take a place and you can you can and you can get out and and, and start to walk. Um, and then you can get back into this um, and then you just find the nearest station and you can step back into this kind of known quantity where you know how to get to the next place or back to your hotel or back to the airport. Um, and I feel like the metro there has has completely transformed my, my sense of it. And I, and I assume that's also true for people who live there. Um, uh, uh, but certainly as a visitor, it's, um, you know, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful change. And, uh, you know, it makes you see how, uh, how transportation can 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 make a city feel entirely different. Both yeah, transportation is that. I mean, it seems as if, in some ways, I don't want to pigeonhole you, Mark, but you you write about freedom, the freedom, obviously, your life to to travel, to see, the freedom of cities to lose oneself, to define oneself, and uh, finally, uh, the opposite of freedom, of course, is one kind of authoritarianism or another. Later today, I'm doing a show with another writer, Martha um, Hodes, who has just written a memoir of being held hostage in a hijacking on an airplane in 1970. I wonder whether our fear of hijacking and, and terrorism and of that kind of authoritarianism in the air, why we perhaps we particularly fetishize it because it's such a challenge to freedom. Flying is about freedom. Your work is about freedom. Imagining a city is about freedom. So any attempt to, to, to literally or metaphorically take it over is an affront to freedom. Is there any truth in that? I mean, I think, I think in more general terms, what, what flying has meant to me and what it's meant to the world has been has been about connection and about openness. Um, you know, I think we saw during the pandemic when, mm. um, you know, when I, I flew throughout the pandemic, um, you know, and I, uh, and many of those planes had no passengers on them, but had a great deal of cargo, whether that was, you know, uh, PPE or medical equipment or, uh, you know, or high, high value electronics and pharmaceuticals. And, you know, you got a sense of how, you got a sense of how integral, um, you know, aviation is to the global economy, but, but, you know, it, I think it's even more, even more than that. It's about, it, it's about connection and about the interpersonal um, connections we can make uh, across the world. And, you know, I, I often think, I know you thought a lot about the internet and, and what it, its effects are on us. And, you know, I, I wonder what you think about, 
you know, 200 years from now, will, will we think that the internet was the greater invention or was it being able to send an email or is it more marvelous? Clearly it's more marvelous to me to be able to actually go somewhere. I mean, I had a pen pal when I was growing up in Hong Kong um, who I used to write letters to all the time. And, um, and a few months ago I met her for the first time ever. And, you know, the whole point of a pen pal was that you'd never meet them. Um, yeah. And that's the, the fear I think of the internet is for many people it substitutes the physical so people said oh you don't have to travel you can network with people in japan or bhutan or or africa but of course nothing nothing replicates the physical and i think one of my fears mark is that um there'll still be a class of people like you and i who will be able to travel and enjoy the physical, the tangible, and everyone else will be on the internet and you can't replicate the world online, even with these fancy Apple glasses. Yeah, I think um, I think I would agree with you. I mean, I, I did read something recently where they, someone was talking about how when they invented the telephone, I mean, certainly when telephones became widespread and international calls became widespread, someone thought, well, oh, now there'll be less, you know, less um, interpersonal travel. You know, people won't fly to their, to see their relatives back in the old world because, um, they can reach them on the phone, but of course the opposite happened. So let's hope the same is true for, uh, is true for, uh, for the internet and airplanes. Excellent.